Episode 15. Boom. That's sort of like a round number, although not really. Ah, it's like, there should be a celebration. Yeah, agreed. You've already started, I've heard. I don't know what you're talking about. You've No, you don't. Oh, right, no. (laughs) It's just normal. There's no celebration on your end of There there are children listening, Josh. We we have to keep this PG-13 rated. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so there was... An interesting video this week uh, over on the Bokeh channel, YouTube channel of Digital Rep TV, you know, the the channel where Locke has a lot of fun comparing cameras and lenses. and A lot of fun. Yeah, well, this week he had plenty <laughs> of fun, although I'm not sure you're going to like it that much. Uh, he had a video uh, comparing perhaps the two best 85mm lenses out there right now, which are the Sony 85mm uh, 1.4 GM lens or G Master and the legendary size uh, Otis 85mm, which is also an f1.4 lens. And uh, there was an interesting thing about this video, which is that they actually did a blind test to see... uh, They they took the same picture with both lenses, and they put them up on their Facebook page, and people got to vote which one they preferred. And can you guess which lens won? Well, you wouldn't have named it a legendary lens for no reason. Well, it's legendary because it's been out for a while and it's worth like four thousand dollars <laughs> but it's it's also got a sterling reputation I, I mean we have to be fair here uh up until the gm lens was released uh the otis was like universally considered to be incredibly sharp like it, people thought that no lens could ever match the sharpness from the otis 85 millimeter lens and uh we've been seeing Lots of reviews of the 85G Master lens saying that it's also incredibly sharp. So I was personally curious to see how the two lenses would stack up against each other. And why don't you enlighten all of us? Which one came out on top? Well, I'm going to give you a hint. There were like 85 or 86 people uh, who voted. And one lens got 58 votes and the other one got exactly half, like 26 or 27 or something like that. And just to be clear, this was this was people voting which of the uh, bokeh renderings they preferred, or which one was they thought was sharper, or like what, was it specific to the bokeh, or was it just sort of like which image rendering they preferred overall? Yeah, it was specific to the bokeh. Okay, that's okay. where they were uh, they were asking about. It's not about how sharp is the lenses, or it's just which bokeh do you prefer? Got it. So uh, one lens got roughly twice as many votes as the other, and let's just break the suspense here. <laughs> It was the Otis. <laughs> I mean, as great as the G Master lens uh, seems to be, and it really does, uh, I can't say I'm really that surprised because, well, that $4,000 price tag has to be justified in some way. Right. Uh, but it's nice to see that it's actually uh, there, that people in a blind test, I mean, yeah, I mean, 80 people is not a huge sample, but it's still pretty significant and the the difference was considerable so what do you think about that i mean everybody says that the two lenses were really close but it looks like there's a difference and and people can actually see it what i struggle with here is that if they're really close then you have to ask the question of um whether or not it's worth the the price difference because the just the difference in price between the g master and the otis can buy you other lenses of course and while while you you know comparing them directly um it's good to know that you can tell the difference like you said you know we'd we'd expect for that to be the case given the the uh, zeiss's pedigree 
um, in a scenario where you're comparing it, um, or, or rather where you're not comparing images directly between them, where it's just those shots in context, um, I mean, is the difference worth paying that extra for? Is it, it this is something I would struggle with. And, and we were talking about this in Slack because for me, I have like a, a selective blindness to the quality of bokeh uh, in the sense that what when you guys are talking about like, oh, it's got a cat's eye shape or it's got an onion shape or it looks like a Teletubby or whatever. <laughs> I'm not seeing the things that you guys are seeing. So I, so long as it's not the purple one. <laughs> yeah, I, right. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so for me, this would be a, a very difficult lens to justify, uh, you know, the, the Zeiss, if this were the only real way that it pulls ahead. If it's also sharper, it's also, you know, there's there's other factors than fine. But bokeh to me as a, as a um, factor f- in my purchasing decision is just really low on the list. Well, the things you had said there, Marius, in our conversation was something about there being like a combination of features, right? You know, how does, how fast is it autofocus? How quiet is the lens? Blah, blah, blah. Like I disagreed with you then, but I can agree with you here when you compare the manual focus Otis lens to the autofocus GM lens. And so like, I think that autofocus thing has to count for something, uh, in this, in this comparison, at least. Yeah, and I think it depends on your usage a lot, as usual, right? Because if if your usage is such that autofocus is not relevant to you, then uh, you know absolutely that that just is taken out of the equation. Uh, but but still, to me, there are several other factors in a lens's design and performance that take precedence over the rendering of its bokeh. Right, it's the, it's the same thing for me. I'm not particularly sensitive to the bokeh quality oh. of a lens, which is why this same question could be asked. I mean, we could include the baddies. I'm getting ganged up on here. I can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're actually in the majority, Josh, right? I mean, like Oliver and I are, are weird here because uh, we there's so many discussions about, about bokeh in general and, and so many reviews of lenses that we read about spend a lot of uh, time discussing this particular aspect. So obviously it's very important to people. Um, it, it's just, I think we're the outliers uh, here in the sense that it, it just seems a little less important than other factors when you're considering um, a lens. And and to me, what I was trying to argue in Slack was that I would prefer to prioritize things that are, uh, that I, that I can't sort of mimic in post effectively, right? Like I can't make a lens faster. I can't make it stabilized. I can't do these, these mechanical physical things in post, whereas I can adjust the um, out of focus areas of an image in Photoshop if I want to. I, I don't, choose to do that for my own shooting, but it is possible. Um, and so to, to me, that's the other side of it is, is ideally I would prioritize my, my purchasing around things that I can't fix in another way. But you can't fix the shape of a, like, can you change the shape of bokeh if it is a cat's eye? Like if all of the bokeh balls in the background have like a football shape, like, I don't think you can I guess you could eliminate the background in Photoshop and just replace it with something brand new, right? But you can't change those shapes or the characteristics of a lens. I suppose. Yeah, it's fair enough. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could, depending on the, like if it's one of those things where you're shooting into the light and you've actually got like the visible globes, I guess you could adjust those in Photoshop, but it would be like wildly right. painstaking yeah. work. And I don't, I don't see why you would ever want to, but right. yeah, no, I take your point. I just, uh, but, and, and on top of that, like to spend an extra, if we're, if we talk about the Zeiss Battis lens versus the GM lens, like to spend an extra thousand bucks or whatever the number is, uh, just to like even out the size of those circles, like, yeah, that might be ridiculous, but I, I mean, I, I'm in the boat where I would 
prefer to spend the thousand dollars so that my bouquet is perfect. Uh, it's like the first thing I see in every photo. Maybe I'm not out of that bouquet phase yet. Just blur it all out, you know. <laughs> but you guys touched on a very important thing before and a very interesting one. It's just it, there's more to a lens than just the bokeh. And you are getting a different package of features with each lens that you consider. For example, f uh, if you jump from the bodies to the GM, you get the dedicated aperture ring, you get a faster aperture, and you get the better bokeh but you lose things on the way as well. You lose the image stabilization and you lose the size and weight advantage. And just the same, if you jump from the GM to the Otis, you lose autofocus, but the GM is actually smaller and lighter than the Otis by a, by a wide margin as well. That sounds crazy. Yeah, the Otis is like a tank. Like literally you could, uh, we, we joke about the D5 here the other day, but you could <laughs> really throw the Otis, it's, it's shaped like a grenade. <laughs> I uh, I was a little surprised because I'd never um, I'd never actually seen one I guess being held by someone I've I've just seen the product shot so watching this video and seeing uh, what it looks like being held in someone's hand I was like I'm marveling it was it was immense yeah. <laughs> this is not the kind of lens that that uh, that I would I mean I guess again it's justified by the the optical quality but it doesn't strike me as the kind of lens you would want to take with you into the field as much as uh, deployed in a studio setting it just seems more practical. No it's definitely a studio lens and and speaking of which uh, one of the the features of the GM lens is the focus hold button which people are uh, always saying it's great it's fantastic well guess what the best focus hold button of all is manual focus you you leave well, yeah. <laughs> you leave the lens and it doesn't move it, and that's uh, the best focus hold you're ever going to get what <laughs> old school yeah it's a it's an interesting piece of glass and uh, but it's for a very specific type of photographer of course you got to be a, a working photographer who is going to earn uh, the money back from the lens several times over for that to make sense yeah. so Either way, what I take away from it as a non-Sony user is that you guys are spoiled for choice when it comes to um, studio primes, or, or I should say portrait primes, because all of these options seem to be really terrific. And while um, you know there's there's pros and cons to which one you actually choose, and there's certainly one for every um, wallet size, um, all of them optically seem to be terrific. Like I don't, I, I'm not aware of one where you can kind of go wrong. That's true. They're they're all pretty amazing, um, and especially for people like me who can't really you know, discern the, the nuances of, uh, of bokeh quality. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a good position to be in. So I envy you guys for that. Good point. Yeah. It's an awesome position to be in. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm not complaining here. Yeah. Grass is greener on this side, Marius. Far greener. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> not always. Our next topic is going to be more on Marius's side. So why don't you tell uh -huh. us a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, very, very interesting and very um, bold article uh, came out uh, recently by uh, Bill Palmer. And uh, Bill basically made the claim that Fuji is the Leica of the new millennium. Shots fired. Yeah, no kidding, right? I mean, it's it's an interesting article because he is a is a Leica fan and he, he sort of walks through his personal history with the cameras. And I think a lot of his concerns mirror the things that we've talked about in previous episodes uh, specifically things like how we perceive Leica's general uh, awareness of the modern age of photography and, and how well it's been reacting to advances in technology. And 
you know, what what kind of attitude it is presenting to the public as a company and how that impacts um, the the perception of its brand and its its longevity. I mean, this is something that, again, to me, it was, uh, you know, a, a key factor in my in my choosing Fuji as my main system uh, is is the the customer support and the way that the company uh, presents itself to its users and the way that it puts out firmware updates and admits to problems and fixes them, you know, because no, no product is perfect. And ideally, yes, you, you know, you release something and it's, it's great as soon as it hits the shelves, but sometimes there are issues and the way that those issues are handled has a huge impact on the way that your customers um, feel about you as a company and, and loyalty, like the, the true brand loyalty that, that all of these camera companies want so desperately is not just, you know, tying people up in lenses to make it hard for them to switch. You you want to make them not want to switch, right? And part of that is is great products and part of it is great support. And I think the crux of um of Bill's article is getting at the fact that Leica is perhaps losing sight of the great support thing and it's not necessarily um keeping up the great product end of the bargain either as it once did. So there's a lot to digest here, but it was uh, it was a pretty fascinating article to me. What what did you guys make of it? I I love the article. I I couldn't agree more with his point. But now that I I'm, I've been thinking about it for the past few days, and uh, there's something that I, I I don't quite get, which is that he's talking basically about support when uh, a product that gets released presents some problems like sensor issues that have happened with several Leica digital digital Leica cameras in the past. Right. But he's not talking about support for the working photographer, right? I mean, that's something that he doesn't enter into at all in the piece. Yeah, that's right. He doesn't touch on on that aspect of it. And if he had, I suspect his story would have been reversed because Leica does have a pretty good reputation for taking care of their working photographers. Like you can send a 50-year-old Leica M3 to to them and they'll fix it for you, which is uh, unheard of. It's not, I mean, the, what's unheard of there is the fact that they're still supporting such old camera models. But the problem and the, the complaints that Leica faces on that front are the lack of expediency with which it actually performs those repairs. So yes, as a professional photographer, I can send my you know, 30-year-old Leica in to get repaired, but it's not like Canon's equivalent system or something like that where within a few days I have a, a rental unit and I'm I'm good to go. Like there are a lot of horror stories out there of cameras being gone for months at a time with very little feedback as to the progress of repairs. Right. Um, and again, it's just a, I think there's a, there's a communication problem, just a fundamental lack of communication that's happening between Leica and its customers. Um, and, and that's sort of what Bill is getting at. And, and I agree with you that, yes, of course, Fuji does not even have a, a professional support network as of yet. So that's, that's just a, a total gap in their, uh, in their offering, but he, he splits it into several points. I mean, he, he talks about reliability of the cameras themselves. He talks about the, the way that their, um, brand identity is presented. Like it, it's fairly clear, you know, how Fuji makes cameras and what they look like and what their goals are. Whereas, he feels that Leica's product lineup shows a lot of fragmentation and a kind of uncertainty about what their um, what their digital um, offering is going to be long term, and and whether or not that's true is hard to say. But I do think that it brings up a lot of uh, a lot of difficult questions for Leica to um, or for Leica fans to contemplate. 
I don't somehow I don't think the company's going to be <laughs> <laughs> right. No, but I totally agree with the, with the point of the article. I mean, I've I've spoken to that fact on the show before, so it's it's really no secret that I believe Leica is uh, it lacks a clear direction. Yeah. Uh, ever since the jump to the digital era, so yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. It it was just something that you know it it caught my it caught my attention because yes, of course. Uh, Problems can happen with every camera, but how often do they happen, really? And how many people do they affect? Uh, whereas usage problems are a lot more frequent. So uh, I was just trying to look at it from a bigger perspective, if you will. But yeah, of course, yeah. The, the, the points he makes are completely valid and completely solid. And I actually agree with, with everything he says. So it's a great piece. Yeah, I mean, I, I just appreciated that it's a fair critique, um, you know, because he's not he's not like someone who's never used a Leica and just sort of hates on them because, you know, he right. he's a, a an extensive experienced Leica user who is, you know, having these these realizations after years of working with various cameras. And uh, to me, that makes it a more valuable perspective because it's one that that I obviously don't share. And we don't, you know, as people who are um don't have a lot of hands-on experience with like a cameras, if any at all, for us, there's, uh, there's a, there's a disconnect, right? It's, it's right. difficult for us to make meaningful critiques about the company and its products because having not used them, you know, we're, we're kind of just speculating. So it's, right. uh, it's just interesting to hear um, similar critiques coming from people who can actually substantiate their, their views in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we also had a really, this is a, an article that, that I know, um, has been a long time coming. Um, a fellow Tarantonian, actually, um, Thomas Wong, wrote an article about his mobile photography workflow. Um, specifically, he sort of compares using iCloud Photo Library and Lightroom Mobile to handle your uh, your photo library. And this is obviously very directly relevant to me because I'm trying to use my iPad as much as possible and it is my my main machine. But I have not yet made the leap toward, um, you know, trying to to uh, I guess create an entirely mobile-based workflow because, quite frankly, the the available tools right now just are not going to cut it for my needs. Um, but Thomas has made it work, and his description and his comparison was pretty fascinating, um, especially in terms of where iCloud Photo Library's conveniences fall apart in terms of uh, the unpredictability of which photos are. Uh, actually downloaded to your device at any given time uh, and, you know, just other little details like that that make it kind of frustrating to work with um, in in some certain circumstances. And I've run into those problems. I'm, I'm sure you guys have as well, where, uh, you know, I've wanted to show someone a photo, but it's like not on the machine anymore. <laughs> so I've got to, you know, and if I don't have a connection at the time, then I'm basically out of luck. So it's there are some problems. I'm not sure that Lightroom is the solution for me yet, which is why, again, I, I haven't really, um, I haven't really tried to develop a system that works with the current tools. But um, as as people who are maybe less into the mobile workflow, you guys reading this, did it seem needlessly complicated or or unpleasant, or how do you how do you feel about the way he's resolved this? Well, maybe not necessarily how Thomas has resolved this, but I, I think I have a solution to. Um your your needs marius um i think it's called the 12 inch macbook <laughs> well sure yeah <laughs> uh so the other day like i imported raw files into my new po portable device which is actually smaller somehow than the ipad pro 
and it edited those raw photos like a champ and then it exported them and put them online. Oh, it was such a good experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's the benefit of having your full Mac. Okay, I'm just being a jerk. No, but it's that that <laughs> um, is the typical mobile workflow. Yeah. I love the 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 in-depth like uh, Tom's did a good job of of explaining it um, you know, kind of straight, dry, put the numbers out there on, you know, file sizes and he showed legitimate problems with it. And like, I'm reading the thing and I'm just going, wow, like it's just problem after problem after problem. Um, but I'm also on this side of the fence now. So like, I'm clearly a, a biased person in the whole conversation. So I can see how I can see, see the appeal of having your photos everywhere, but the, both iCloud Photo Library and Lightroom Mobile's issues that he brings up in his article are, um, to me, they're just, they're easily fixed by not using the iPad as a mobile photo device. Right. Yeah. So. Right. I personally, I, I don't use my iPad as a, as a photo editing tool and it's, it, it just doesn't feel like the kind of device that I would enjoy using for that task. So. Uh, it's been an interesting read. Definitely, Thomas's article is very thorough, and if you're considering a similar workflow, there's a lot to take in here in this piece, and it's really give it a read because it's great, great stuff. But uh, for myself, I, I I guess I've just been scarred by my previous iCloud sync experience, which has been pretty terrible, <laughs> and just the thought of having my photo library in there just gives me the chills so no thank you agreed and as for lightroom uh it's just i've i've played with the lightroom mobile app for a couple or for a few minutes and and it just never i i, I didn't feel comfortable using it so maybe i should have given it a a, a more sustained uh, try but for now i i mean my ipad is also relatively old it's a first generation ipad air it's like three years old already so wow, it's not so the most, yeah, the, the, the <laughs> processing power is pretty limited. So yeah, the experience is not great. But we would all agree that the iPad is the future of photo editing, I would think. I wouldn't. Not at all. The pencil, five years from now, it's going to be like the thing to get as a photographer. But for now, I just... Well, you said it yourself. What's that? You, you said it yourself. The 12-inch MacBook is smaller than the iPad Pro, so... Well, yeah, but a 9.7-inch iPad Pro with you know, Apple Pencil support and raw and, and blah, 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 blah. Like maybe five years down the road, it's the best thing. Um, right now it's not, and I'm not willing to make the sacrifice now. Well, this is an entirely different conversation, but I think I would still prefer to have a bigger screen to do my photo editing on because it's not just about pixels. Well, then let's imagine a 27 inch iMac with Apple Pencil support. Like, come on guys. Now that I could get behind. <laughs> Now you're talking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, the, the big appeal of the iPad and iOS devices in general when it comes to photography is that I, I really like the directness of editing um, by, by actually touching and drawing on the photos. Like that just, it, it, it feels a lot less um, messy to me than, than sort of mousing around. And yes, I do like um, having a, a big, you know, vast screen um, when I'm doing edits, but I, I really do think that if the 12.9 um, iPad Pro had the software to support a professional photo workflow, it would probably be my, you know, it would be the perfect solution for the way that I like to edit photos. And that's why I'm so keen to get stuff like this to work. And of course, I am in the same boat as you guys in the sense that I have not yet switched to a, you know, mobile only workflow for photography. 
but I would like to, and I, and I do firmly believe that um, iPads or at least devices like them uh, represent the future of of computing. And so, it's it's kind of like I'm trying to hop onto that bandwagon, but it's not uh, you know it's not quite ready yet. And that's why um, I, I think. I speak for Thomas as well when I say that we are very, very eager to see what Apple is bringing to the table this summer at WWDC, because it's going to be a clear indication of of how close we are to, uh, I guess, realizing the the future that we would like to see. Because we we definitely aren't there yet, and I think anyone who claims that we are is um, a, a masochist or or just has very <laughs> different, very different ideas of what photo editing should. Uh, should look like, but, um, yeah, we're, we're definitely not there yet and that's fine. Um, but I, I do think it is something worth striving for and I hope we get it this summer. I really hope we get to make some progress on that front because I do love whatever edits I can do on my iPad. I love doing there. Right. Right. Yeah. Agreed. I guess our last, our last piece of news is something that just caught my eye because, um, I, I have a, uh, a shoot that, that might happen, um, this week actually where, um, I have to shoot something out of a moving vehicle. And so I was thinking of potentially using the GoPro mounted to the car. Um, but of course, if you've ever shot with a GoPro, you know that it is not um, stabilized. And so footage from a moving car tends to be unusably shaky. Right. And along comes Olympus, and they announce an addition to their Tough line of cameras. Um, it's called the Tough TG Tracker. And it is basically their answer to GoPro. It is an action camera. It shoots 4K video at 30 frames per second, and it's virtually indestructible. Yeah. I and mean, if reading the uh, <laughs> reading the list of uh, of defenses it has here, it's shockproof, it's waterproof, it's crushproof, it's dustproof, and it's green. And it comes in green. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really <laughs> looks like it's made of kryptonite. It's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty cool looking device. I have to say, like even just aesthetically, it's it looks like a something that I would you know, want to strap to my forehead as I'm doing active things. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, the reason it stood out to me is because it has the same five axis stabilization that we know and love from Olympus's OMD line of cameras. Uh, and, oh, and the pen, I guess now. Yeah. Um, and it works extremely well on those cameras. So seeing that brought to an action camera is amazing because it would mean, um, well, I mean, it would technically mean a lot more usably usable footage than what I can get out of the GoPro, which even though the GoPro black um, edition, the Hero 4 black um, offers more in terms of um, like frame rates and things like that. Um, the simple fact that this TG tracker is stabilized would make it a better choice for uh, for a lot of people, I think. So Olympus, Olympus definitely made the right call there. And do you think the five axis image stabilization system might be good enough to not need a gimbal with it? I don't know. That's what I would want to test, right? I mean, that would be the first question on on most people's minds because if they can, especially for an action camera, the goal is to to have the whole kit be as small and minimal as possible, right? Because you don't, right? You know, you don't want a gimbal and everything strapped to you as you're trying to do things, or or have someone having to ski behind you with a gimbal. So, if they can, uh, you know, if they've if they've tuned the system to work well enough that you don't need a gimbal for um, I would say common scenarios like, you know, riding a bike or uh, or mounting it to your car or things like that, then that alone would be a transformative leap in in usability for action cameras. But I don't I haven't seen any demonstrations yet. Uh, I think it's supposed to ship in June or something like that. So we probably have to wait a while. Um, but it was still an exciting announcement. Yeah, definitely. Does it guys two things here really quick. Like one, 
Is it not a little bit like it's substantially larger than a GoPro, right? I don't know. I I have to see like a comparative thing. It looks bigger, but I don't know how much bigger. And then it's got a little screen that flips out. Yes, it does. So like I, I just I find that sized and to be I don't know. I just imagine it being inconvenient. I obviously have no idea, but it just looks looks inconveniently large, even though it's not large. Right. But again, with the stabilization thing in mind. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Compare it not just to the GoPro, but to the GoPro with its plastic housing and with a gimbal. Right. Right. And then suddenly it's not such a big size discrepancy. And that's the key. Right. And and it's also far cheaper. And actually, you can see uh, there, there are a few videos on the lower side of the Web page. And you can see on the thumbnails the, 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 a guy holding the camera. And it's it doesn't appear to be a, that big. Oh, yeah. It's not too... Not bad. The other thing I was going to say, um, it's kind of a weird little thing, but it's got a, an enhanced GPS and compass. I, I find that um, intriguing. I guess that's where the tracker comes from. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to have a very sophisticated um, positioning system in there and an accelerometer and I think a barometric pressure sensor and temperature and like all sorts of all sorts of sensors yeah. in there, really. And it's also everything proof. And it's everything proof, yeah. So it, they've, it's really like, this is, you know, if you're in the market for an action camera for the summer, I would uh, I would potentially wait it out and see what the early reviews of, uh, of the Tough TG say, because it might end up taking, you know, a sizable chunk out of GoPro's market there. Yeah, so I bought yeah. a GoPro this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right, you did. <laughs> Did it arrive yet or is it still in transit? Uh, no, uh, it's still in transit. So, and I also bought a gimbal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So you'll, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Uh, and you ended up with the silver, right? The hero Four silver. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Good. But then this comes out and I'm going, Oh, like, look at the price. And although like, I don't like the green and I don't like the size and, uh, anyway, but it has enhanced GPS. It does. It does come in a different color. It does. It does come in a different color. I think it comes in black or this this spacey green okay. thing. Am I the only person who likes to have GPS built into cameras? Like when I go traveling, I got to turn my phone into airplane mode, and I I'm just not unless I'm doing things wrong. Like I can't track my location with when I'm in airplane mode, right? Right. Well, the way that it uh, the way that the Fuji app works, at least, and I, I assume most of the apps, um, when you use the location tagging thing, you synchronize the clock and the camera, um, or sorry, the, the camera and the phone clocks, and then you just leave the phone in a state where GPS is active, so not in airplane mode. Um, Wi-Fi has to be on. Okay. And then after the fact, you can actually connect your camera, and it will synchronize the data. Um, all at once. So you don't have to like keep it connected the whole time, which is what I thought initially. But that would, that would require two things. One, you would actually be using data, correct? Of some sort. Well, not necessarily because your GPS, um, it doesn't require data to work. It's a separate, uh, it's a, it's a separate yeah. positioning unit. So as long as you are not in airplane mode, those antennas are working. You're not going to get data. You're not going to get like cell signal if you don't have a local plan, okay. but if you leave 3G or LTE on and Wi-Fi on, you should still get GPS functionality. Um, so in a in a mapping app, you won't actually get the the map data unless it's pre-downloaded, but you should still be able to navigate properly. Right. And uh, so you would still be able to get to, uh, to record the tracking information that the app needs. The other fact is you have to remember to turn that on in the morning when you step out the hotel door. Yeah. I, I tried to do that last time and I uh, forgot <laughs> miserably. But anyway, I, I just figured like it'd be nice to have a GPS thing built right into the camera. 
so that you didn't have to remember all that that extra stuff. Well, that's one of the things that uh, Pentax has done with their new flagship uh, full-frame DSLR, isn't it? They put a, a GPS module into the Prism. Right. Um, so that's that's pretty neat. I think they're one of the only ones that did that. I think the reason most camera manufacturers opt to not do it is because it uh, it takes a lot of battery. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. Hey, guys, like the Leica T has it. You buy the Visoflex or Visoflex or however they th- call it, you know, for an extra $1,000 on top of the whole thing. And boom, <laughs> you got GPS. On a budget. Excellent. <laughs> budget in Leica terms. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's get to our main topic because it's a pretty interesting one this week. Um, we want to talk about um, film, shooting film, and uh, we're going to do it from sort of an idiot's perspective, a.k.a. me. And me. <laughs> I'm part of that group. I'm proud to be part of that group. All right. So Josh and I are the idiots <laughs> on this on this week's episode because we have basically no experience shooting film, whereas Alvaro actually shoots film regularly. So we're going to pepper him with questions and he's going to give us a sort of... Uh, you know, explain like I'm five version of, of what it means to shoot film today, right? Because we we understand the technology vaguely, but why would we do it today and all sorts of other things like that we're going to dig into. So, uh, Alvaro, do you want to like introduce us here? Well, the, the funny thing is that I regularly get uh, email from readers, uh, you know, readers of Analog Senses, my website, uh, asking about a few articles on shooting film that I have on the site. And people uh, feel curious about it, and they often write to tell me that they were, uh, you know, doing some research to to get started with, sh- uh, with shooting film, and they came across one of my articles, and they they say that it helped them or that it, it was interesting to read, and um, and that's always nice. It, it's super nice to get that email, and 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 I'm I'm glad that it, I can sort of help out a little bit to those people and help encourage the the habit of, of shooting film because I think it's a very very rewarding creative experience. I think it's a, a completely different way of photography and you can sort of get into the whole discussion of whether it is more uh, more authentic or more or closer to the way photography used to be and or or I guess you could also say whether we have lost something along the way, you know, during the evolution and the, the change to digital technology. And there are arguments, all sorts of, of, of arguments and opinions on that matter. But uh, to me, that that is not really important. To me, the only reason to shoot film is if you enjoy it. And uh, I do. I do enjoy it. I think it's... Uh, it's lots of fun. It's interesting. You learn a lot because the good thing about having a, an old film camera is that it doesn't help you in any way. You, it, it's up to you to get the image that you want and you have to know your way around the camera and, and around the, the technique and, and everything to get an image that you, that you can be happy with. So there's a lot to it, but it's very rewarding. And once you get started, it's, it's, it's addictive, really. All right, so I have my first idiot question for you. Okay. I recently, I recently um, pulled out uh, one of my grandfather's old film cameras, and uh, it's sitting in front of me. It is the Minolta SRT Super, which uh, you helped me discover is a is a pretty good camera. Yeah, it's an awesome camera. It's it's an awesome camera, apparently. Which awesome. Um, however, I do not understand why it's awesome. And more specifically, I don't really like with digital, it's very easy for me to understand what makes one camera better than another one. You know how I I know how to compare them. I know what, uh, justifies added cost, um, in, in 
cameras that are, you know, have a digital sensor, essentially. But in terms of film cameras, I'm not really clear on what makes one better than another. Like, what does a high-end film camera do for me that a lower-end one doesn't? Uh, you know, in terms of, like... I know that some of the um, original Leica M cameras are prized because they are fully mechanical, for instance. They have no right. uh, electronic components at all. And so that that's one thing, I guess. Um, but is that always the case? Like, in general, do I want there to be some sort of electronic aids or do I not? Uh, this particular Minolta has a battery, which I recently paid to have replaced because obviously the, the one that was in it uh, was dead. I don't actually know what that battery does, but now I have one that uh, that works for it. So when I when I start exploring it, I I will actually have a fully functioning camera. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's essentially what is it that sets good film cameras apart from bad ones? Well, there are there are lots of things that that can make the price go up, right? And to be to be specific, we're talking about thirty five millimeter film cameras. Not we're not getting into medium format, which those are. That's a whole different. That's a whole different world. But in 35 millimeter uh, cameras, you basically have several aspects that could drive the price up. And relatively speaking, of course, because we're talking about really old technology. So you can find a really high end, what would have been a professional uh, state of the art camera back in the day, you can find it for $100, $200 today. Yep. So prices can go up, but really not that much, unless you're talking about Leica, which is, a, again, just like medium format, it's an entirely different world. But, for example, um, towards the end of the film era was when autofocus was invented, or rather perfected, and uh, I believe it was uh, towards the late 80s when Canon introduced their uh, their EF mount and the, the EOS series of cameras, which they all feature autofocus and they are still compatible with every single Canon EF lens released from the eighties to today. Even brand new lenses are compatible with film cameras back from the eighties. So that's impressive. And I, I would guess that if you're trying to buy one of those cameras, the seller will try to get a higher price for it because it's going to grant you access to a huge ecosystem of lenses and most of those lenses are really modern and really great glass so that's a reason to pay more for a camera for example okay and then there's if if you're talking about manual focus cameras it's all about the degree of automation that those cameras have built into them like you were saying typically a fully mechanical camera is going to be uh, sold uh, cheaper than a camera that has an electronic shutter, for example, because if you, if it has an electronic shutter, you can have aperture priority, you can have the fully automatic uh, program mode, uh, you can have uh, these types of aids that make shooting with film easier, and and that's something people may feel it's worth paying for. And finally, it's also uh, whether the camera has a light meter or not, because I don't know of many people that would pay a lot of money for a camera that doesn't have a built-in light meter today. Um, again, because we've gotten a bit lazy and uh, everybody's... I mean, the built-in meters for every modern camera, they are so good and so accurate that there's really no need to have an external dedicated meter anymore unless you're shooting in a studio setup. Uh, in studio, they are still widely used. But as a result, light meters have gone really up in price. There are hardly any consumer-level models anymore because it's become a niche professional tool. Right. 
So it's it's not worth investing several hundred dollars on a light meter to use on a 40-year-old mechanical film camera. Again, with the exception of Leica's. So that's just there are there are several aspects that can drive the price up, but in general it has to do with how advanced the camera is or how many features it gives you. Okay, so let me ask let me ask a parallel question then. In terms of let's say that we're not um, that my technique for shooting film is impeccable and that I don't need um, I don't need any of the electronic assistance features that would perhaps drive the price up. If I were to take two um, film cameras that are um, you know one of them has these electronic functions, one of them does not. One of them is like a cheapo version. Uh, and the other one is like a top of the line version in terms of the actual exposure that I get from it. Again, assuming that my technique is good enough to make equally good use of the camera itself. Is there any difference in the actual image that is exposed? Like, is there any difference in the way it handles the film or the the quality of the light capture, anything like that? There might be a small difference, a very small difference. But considering, I mean, as long as the camera is uh, minimally competent, it's basically going to be unnoticeable on your images okay. because the okay. only the only thing that could impact that is how well the flange distance is how precisely it is implemented on the camera which means that the lens uh, the, the the lens plane the lens focuses the image exactly on the plane of the film right so uh- and the other the other aspect to that is how flat the film is held against the against the back plate of the camera. Right. So there's a pressure plate there holding the film flat and really good cameras are supposed to hold it completely perfectly flat so that you don't get distortion or out of focus edges on your pictures. And maybe if you have a cheaper camera that's not as precise and you might get a slight misalignment there on the edges, but usually that's really not a problem. So Okay, so it's basically like some additional mechanical tolerances that that might come into play. Yeah, but I would say it's insignificant. Like at the end of the day, this is nothing like a digital camera where your sensor is the main factor that's going to determine your image quality. Well, and the lens, of course. But if right, if you yeah. are talking the same lens on different cameras, then on a digital camera there's a really big difference, but on a film camera the sensor is the film. So there's right. a film camera is literally just a window that opens and lets light pass through for a given amount of time and that's it. So as long as the shutter is precise and the film is held flat, it's exactly the same. Okay, so that's what I was trying to wrap my head around because coming from digital, it's it's again it's a different um, set of priorities. But it, that that makes some sense to me. Yeah. But in terms of the film itself, this is this is where I think we get into like a huge. Um, oh, but hold on, just one second, because I've been mentioning a few times that Leicas are really expensive, but Voidlander also makes film cameras, rangefinder film cameras that are compatible with the Leica M mount. And yeah, they are not as nice because they're not all metal and they're not as uh, luxurious and are as, as classy. But in terms of the actual pictures you can get with them, they're exactly the same as the best Leica film camera you can get your hands on. Huh. And they cost maybe $300, $400 used today. So there you go. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm, I'm happy now with my, my Minolta here, which turns out to be a great camera. I was uh, I was actually I, did, I forgot to tell you but um, I noticed that the uh, ISO dial or the ASA dial as it is on this camera yep. on uh, on the SRT Super is actually the same mechanism as on the Fuji X Pro Two. Nice. Uh, it's got the same like lift and twist thing for setting uh, for setting the ISO, which is 
kind of funny because I, I thought it was like a rarer mechanism, but seeing it on this camera, I was like, oh, I guess, I guess not. Yeah, it's all been done before. Yeah. <laughs> But in terms of uh, in terms of what I put into this thing, so I've got you know I've got my battery, and so now technically it it should do whatever it is capable of doing electronically. Um, but in terms of film, uh, because there are so many options, and because um, the way that the ISO or ASA uh, exists in the film world versus the digital world, uh, what sort of factors are at play when you're choosing the film that you go out and shoot? I mean, I've seen a lot of people tend to. Uh, sort of like have a favorite film and they just sort of collect a whole bunch of that film. And then that's just, that's what they shoot. Um, and their shooting kind of revolves around that, that style. Right. I don't know if that's um, just my impression or if that is the way that a lot of film shooters work. Like how do, how do you look at it? That's definitely a thing. And people uh, even collect expired film because film can expire. You have to preserve it in the fridge uh, at a given temperature. Uh, but uh, people seek out, really old batches of expired film from 20 years ago and uh, it, it it gives a really unique look to your pictures it's kind of washed out and and the colors are all are all altered a little bit but it's a very interesting look and uh, it's also a very uh, unexpected one because each role is going to give you a slightly different character so people actually do that and they also do the same, although I believe to to a lesser extent uh, with modern current film. Uh, yeah, people have favorite films and they, they only shoot that. Um, just like people only shoot one focal length. Uh, you know, it's just a, a creative choice and uh, right. it's valid. I don't do that personally. I think the beauty of shooting film is that you get to pick your sensor every, every role you shoot. And uh, I do that. I depending on my mood, depending on on the the weather conditions, because different films are better suited for different conditions. And once you learn how each film behaves, you can sort of make your choice. Uh, you know, taking that into account. Uh, but yeah, I, I tend to switch things around every now and then. Uh, but I respect people who just stick to one particular film stock and and only shoot that. That's just a creative choice, just like any other. Okay, so so for me, because I don't really intend to be like uh, you, you know a, a full time film shooter or even a, a very frequent film shooter, I, I think that my curiosity um, about the medium is really to have a more hands on sense of what film still does better than digital. And so from that perspective, what I'm looking for now is uh, essentially a better understanding of what kind of film. I should choose in order to reveal those differences, right? Because if right. I want to go out and shoot a roll of film and come home and develop and be like, oh, now I understand what film is capable of that I can't get from my digital cameras still. Um, that I, like I, I, I'm I'm not quite sure what kind of film right. it would be that would reveal that. Like, is it a black and white film uh, of of a high ISO rating? Is it one of the color films? Yeah, depending on what you're looking for, uh, you can sort of go at it a few different ways. And the first one is probably one of the most important ones, but it's not—it's one that's not going to apply to you personally, which is that, in my opinion, film is a great teaching medium. It's, it's fantastic. It's a great way to learn how, how the photography rules work and how the technique works and the impact that every decision you make has on the final pictures. It's great because it forces you to make those choices. It, it doesn't give you the answers for free. So that's a fantastic way to get started. And I would recommend it to 
to everyone who's curious about about getting started in this whole photography world, not just film photography, but photography, you know, in general. That's the first one. The the second one, in terms of what it does better than digital technology, I wouldn't necessarily say better. I would say different, because with digital technology has reached a point already, and a few years ago, in fact, where in terms of resolution, it's there or it, it has already surpassed 35 millimeter film. Uh, in terms of uh, of shadow detail, uh, as well, uh, the only the only area where film remains ahead of digital is highlight highlight recovery. Uh, so, film loves overexposure. Uh, color negative film or, or negative film in general is what I'm talking about. Uh, you can definitely you can overexpose by one, two, even three stops, and it's not going to to ruin that the highlight detail on your pictures uh, and that's fantastic it's the opposite as as with digital uh, typically in digital technology you need to be careful not to blow your highlights and you sort of don't worry so much about the shadows because you can you can always pull those up later in lightroom yeah i was going to say that's typically easier to recover shadows in the digital realm exactly and film is the other way around you lose detail in the shadow area a lot more easily than you do in the highlights so what you have to do when you're shooting film is you just expose for the shadows and you just let the highlights fall where they may, you know, and you don't have to worry about that 90% of, of the cases. If you're shooting slide film, on the other hand, that doesn't work because a slide film is a lot more unforgiving. The dynamic range that it can capture is a lot narrower. So if, if you're trying to take a picture of a very contrasty scene, uh, let's say you, if you had a dedicated light meter and you metered for the shadows and then you metered for the highlights and you get a, a difference in, in, uh, in brightness that is greater than three stops, uh, chances are that film is not going to be able to handle that difference. And you're going to lose detail on the highlights or the shadows or even both if you're not careful with your metering. So if you don't want to have to deal with that, just shoot color negative film because modern negative film is excellent. Right. Uh, the reason to shoot slide film, which is the other thing where where film remains uh, different, but arguably for some people better than digital, is color reproduction. Slide film, especially the modern emulsions from Fuji, like Velvia, like Provia, those are fantastic in the way they capture color. And it's really saturated, it's beautiful. And part of the whole filter craze that we're seeing today, I suspect, comes from those films because they really are striking when you look at them. So those are a few a few areas where it's just it's different, but for some people, including myself, it might be more pleasing. And another one I, I almost forgot is noise or grain which is how we call the interference pattern in, in film photography. That's called grain because it's actually particles that uh, change shape when light touches them. So yeah. the grain uh, on, on a film photograph uh, has a completely random distribution and people generally find it very pleasing, very aesthetically pleasing. And another difference is that grain in, in, an, in a film photograph actually increases acutance, which is called, which is what you call the perceived sharpness of an image. So if you have a little bit of grain on your picture, it looks sharper to the human eye, 
Whereas with digital noise, that doesn't happen or doesn't always happen at least. Well, it's also because digital noise is is a consequence of degradation. You tend to lose sharpness when you get digital noise in the image. So the, it's it's obviously going to be backwards. I didn't know that actually about uh, about grain though. So that's that's an interesting thing to explore. I mean, I was I was basically considering. Um, there, there's a camera store here in Toronto that that um, still sells quite a variety of different film stocks. So I was thinking of picking up like uh, one of the common color negative films. And then also uh, perhaps one of the modern black and white um, or like a Tri-X, you know, one of the the very popular ones. Yeah. Um, just to try and, again, to, to get a better hands-on sort of understanding of what makes those films so appealing to people. Right. Um, and it, it may well be the case that I shoot with them and I get the photos back. And of course, the first rolls are going to be frightening. But um, <laughs> once I get the hang of it, um, you know, it, it may well be that I, I come to a better understanding of why people shoot film these days. Or I might be like, well... You know, I, I I see the the aesthetic here, but I'm not uh, comfortable with the workflow trade-offs, or right. who knows. Either way, it's a point of curiosity for me, so I, I look forward to uh, to digging in a little further this summer and and exploring it. Um, right. I'm I'm kind of curious about Josh here because, like I said, we're the the two idiots here who don't have film experience. I just so happen to be um, exploring it right now because I you know came across this this old camera that is. Uh, you know, going to help me out with that. But Josh, do you feel any inclination to uh, to explore film, or is that something that's not even in your sphere of interest, really? Straight on shot question. I, I think I've always said this. I we we hate on Leica in this show every now and then, um, <laughs> but it still remains as the system on the top of my bucket list that I would just love to try. And everybody talks about Leica's. Um, their reputation comes from the film eras eras. So like that might be the point of interest that I would um, say would be that if that's where Leica got its reputation from and that's what it did so well, then maybe that's what I would like to try. Um, and in fact, in the last like 20 minutes of you asking questions, I've sat here on eBay uh, pricing out Leica M7s. <laughs> so <laughs> to answer your question, like before, like 20 minutes ago, no, I'm not interested in film as of right now. Yeah, I, I am. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Uh, so by next week, you'll be the first of us who's actually used a Leica right. camera. I'll probably have bought an M7. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> be careful because it's addicting. I believe it. <laughs> uh, I think I would buy an M7 uh, straight off of eBay right now if it wasn't for the fact that you have to buy M glass to go with it. So I was going to say that's the, the body's easy enough. Right. <laughs> right. Well, you do have, you have plenty of Voidlander lenses and size lenses for the M mount. So it's not just Leica lenses. Oh, another rabbit hole. I don't have time for these. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to break it. Yeah, but yeah. If you want to shoot film with a Leica body, there's a way to do that without spending a fortune. Okay. The other question I have is, I was trying to like cut Marius off here, but he was on a good roll. So um, on a good roll, uh, pardon the pun. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, there's our episode title. <laughs> <laughs> so I was on Henry's, uh, which is the like the, one of the bigger Canadian retailers for photography stuff, and like you have to dig into their menus to find film, like film in general, just to buy it. Um, there's no local store around me that would ever sell film anymore. So my question was going to be like, where do you find this stuff? Eventually, I did find it. It took me ten minutes on Henry's website to find. You know, under the more menu, there is like a film section. Um, and my jaw dropped immediately when I saw all the, the pricing of it. But do you guys have a, a 
do you have any recommendations on a place to go where it would be cheaper to or or is this kind of the standard rate you know you have a hard time finding the film and it's expensive to boot how expensive are we talking about well, well okay expensive in my world the fact is like 10 bucks a roll how many how many shots do you get out of a roll of film uh 36 out of most so, rolls of film okay so we're talking 36 cents a photo uh yeah oh my gosh Oh, my interest just went out the door, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, but 10, 10 bucks a roll seems reasonable. And you're talking okay. Canadian dollars, right? Right, right, right. Yep. So in US dollars, it would be like how many? Probably like six or seven, somewhere there. Okay, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Okay. If it's a good emulsion, if it's a good like Portra, Kodak Portra or something like that, it's a, it's a good price. And of course, the more you buy, the more you buy, the more rolls you buy, the cheaper it gets. Right. And you have even huge rolls, huge canisters of like a hundred meters of film. And you then okay. you can cut it and fill these smaller thirty-six shot rolls yourself. And that's also a great way to save money. Boy, that is manual as it gets. So let's get past the price part of it. Where do you get film from? Like, okay, so you go to Henry's, cool, but is there a, a different like do you guys have an online place that you recommend or? I haven't been able to find one here in Spain that has lots of different film stocks. Uh, in general, you can find them on, you know, these labs that that get people's film and they scan it and they they return the a CD with the scans or or a digital download with the with the photos. They usually sell film as well. But uh, I was going to say that the main problem is not necessarily where to buy the film, but where to process it. Okay. That because it there used to be it used to be the case that you could find a you know a one hour uh, processing lab like a hundred meters away from your front door, but that's not the case anymore. That's a really endangered business, and uh, it has shifted to a different model where you have these really uh, artsy labs. They're, they're, they're very hands-on. They build a relationship with their clients. They like to do everything, you know, in a more considerate, slower way. Uh, and those are thriving right now, but they're thriving precisely because there are so few of them. Uh, I don't know if they would, they would thrive if there were hundreds of them. So it might be tricky to find one near you. You can always, uh, mail the film and they'll, they'll mail it back to you or they'll just keep it for you for a while. Right. So that's not a huge problem, but, but yeah, that's perhaps the main concern because you can always find either an eBay or an Amazon. I'm sure you can find uh, different, different films to buy, but you should then ask yourself where, where am I going to get it developed and, and, and printed or scanned. Okay. And if enough. it's black and white film, you can do it yourself at home because it's pretty easy. It only takes, a few a few liquids and you can mix them yourself at home and then do the whole thing yourself it takes 15 minutes and you develop you can develop two or even four rolls at the same time so in, in 15 minutes you've you're done uh, but if it's color film then it's a lot more difficult because the temperature has to be very well controlled and we're talking about 40 degrees celsius so it's pretty hot it's not something you should drop on you so yeah, it's a it's a little bit trickier. Okay, it's doable, but it's a little bit trickier. Yeah, I'm not interested in doing my own developing at this stage because I just I'm not 
ready for that level of added hassle. But I right. actually had a hell of a time trying to find a good lab um, here in Toronto, which does not bode well for you, Josh. Uh, um, no. <laughs> um, but basically, I found some options that that were definitely in line with what Alvaro was just saying about them being kind of the uh, the the artsy style photo lab, where they really seem to be very involved and very good at what they do. From from what I can tell. Um, yep. In my case, I you know what you should take a look at uh, downtown camera. I'm not sure if you guys have a retail um, store anywhere near you, but I think they ship uh, across Canada. Um, it's a, it's a Canadian company, and they have like a huge variety of of different film stocks, and they're priced pretty well, I would say. Um, so that's that's one potential option for for getting the film itself. They also do developing. And you can do exactly what Oliver was saying. You can mail it to them and they'll mail it back or they'll just um, send you the scan. Um, and yeah, so I guess that's as far as workflow, this is leading into my next set of questions, because one of the things that that has made me hesitant about film in general is the um, the inconvenience <laughs> overall of uh, both of shooting and of being able to to then process the film or to, to look at it, because on the one hand, yes, your technique is definitely going to be sharpened by the fact that you're, you know, you have less direct and instantaneous feedback. You really have to make each shot count. It's a more deliberate process, all of that. Uh, but on the other hand, it is also, to me, I think the biggest frustration is knowing that, uh, you know, I've got 36 shots in the role and then I'm I'm done right. with that role. Like that just, that's a limit that I'm so unused to in the days of, you know, large SD cards. Um I don't know what that's going to be like. I might enjoy it, but it's just something that has made me hesitant. So I don't know how you, um, like, because you shoot both film and digital, what, what is the, you know, what do you notice going between them in terms of hmm. the workflow of taking photos and then actually enjoying those photos? Well, in my experience, you get a surprisingly high amount of keepers when you're shooting film. And part of it has to do with what you just said, which is that you're more, uh, more aware of the process and you're more careful with how you do everything and I remember there's this this great joke uh, I, I saw it on the internet I don't remember when probably Twitter uh, and, and it was this uh, there's it's like a comic strip with three three images it started with a roll of large format film which said uh, 10 pictures six are awesome then a roll of 35mm uh, film which said 36 pictures, 6 are awesome. And then an SD card which, has, which said 10,000 pictures, 6 are awesome. So yep. <laughs> part of shooting digital is that you take everything for granted and you're not careful about what you're shooting and how you're shooting. And you just say, I fire a 10-shot burst and one of them might turn out okay. And many people do that, and that's unfortunate. But uh, I guess, well, if it's there, why not use it, right? But you're then going to trade that off for a lot more post-processing time. And that also counts. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I just feel like shooting film is a lot more forgiving that people give it credit for. And as long as you are minimally careful and you know what you're doing... Uh, it, it takes some work to ruin a film shot. Let's put it that way. Oh, that's that's a bit of work that I'm sure I'll manage to put in with my first few roles. <laughs> I, I just I feel like it's inevitable. Um, but I, I also feel like maybe um, it, it won't be too different from the way that I shoot digital because, as you guys know, my my digital shooting is is I guess fairly film like in that I tend to you know keep the screen off. I don't chimp and I don't tend to use bursts at all. 
Right. So I I do have a very deliberate shooting style just in general. And um, so I guess that would translate quite well <laughs> into the film world. I just don't know how I would feel about, um, about, you know, it's even simple things like not being able to check the histograms for things or not being able to double check what my uh, exposure settings right. are actually producing if I'm uncertain, right? Like sometimes trickier lighting situations, I'm I'm choosing my settings and I'm firing off a couple of shots, right. but I might take a look and be like, ah, you know what? That's not actually what I had in mind. I can make an adjustment. Right. If you were shooting medium format, you would have a workaround that, uh, a way to work around that. If if you had a, one of these cameras that have interchangeable backs, you know what I'm talking about? Like these yeah, Hasselblads yeah. Or, or the Mamias, yeah. the, the, the part that holds the film can actually be taken away from the camera body and you can, you can switch them mid-roll, right? So there are Polaroid instant film backs so you can take a test shot using the Polaroid film and you get to see it right there and then. You you can check that your exposure is correct, that your framing is correct, and then you pop the real film that you want to work with and boom, off you go. So there's a there are ways. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's a pretty great uh, great workflow. I mean, it's it's a bit of a hassle, but it works. Uh, it's better than not having anything, definitely. Well, they do call it a Hasselblad. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> oh, that's a knee slapper. Sorry, that was really awful. That was really oh. awful. It's like a dad joke level. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? To be honest with you, Marius, I'm in the same boat. I picked up... Um, I, I had a great experience at Best Buy this week. I put my hands on new cameras for the first time in a long time. And I tried it. I picked up a 5D Mark III, put my eye to the viewfinder changed an aperture and realized there were no digital settings in the viewfinder and put it down and laughed. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. if I couldn't right. do that with a film camera, no. Yeah. It's very different. I mean, it's, it's like a, it feels like a safety net to me, right? It, it's like, right. Oh, it doesn't matter if I get it wrong initially because I can easily fix it. And more importantly, I'm easily able to check that I've made a mistake. Uh, and you're definitely going to make mistakes because I remember, yeah. and, and, and they're going to be heartbreaking ones. Because for me, I remember vividly the first big mistake that I made was that I, uh, with my Canon A1 program, which is a 35mm SLR camera, uh, I, I was super careful. And it was when I was taking my photography course. So it was during one of the assignments of the course. We had to shoot a roll of black and white film on the school premises. We had to just go outside on the corridors and, you know, you had to experiment with different framings and all of that and I was super careful I, I thought I had gotten so many awesome shots and when I when I went back to to take the to take out the film and develop it I realized I hadn't I hadn't loaded the film properly and I had taken literally zero shots oh, so like the, wow. the, like the film hadn't caught on to the the leader hadn't caught on to the take up spool and it hadn't been advancing the film every time I I pushed the lever, uh, so basically it, it has stayed there on frame one all the time, and and that was like when you realize you've lost all the effort of the of the past couple of hours, that's heartbreaking, and and you don't forget it as you can tell. So <laughs> yeah, so I look forward to my own disaster experience like that. I'm sure it'll happen. Yeah, if you were to buy a Leica, it could be even worse because at least I hadn't ruined the film. But if you, being a rangefinder camera, if you forget to take off the lens cap, you're actually going to take, well, well, not, I guess if the lens cap is on, you're not technically not going to expose the film because it's going to be black, 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 and it's not going to ruin the film anyway. But yeah, you're going to get 36 
blank shots anyway. So well, that's true because you'll be looking through the rangefinder and you'll think that everything is just fine. But yeah, there's no way. There's no way to tell if you have the lens cap on. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> it sounds like film is a nightmare to shoot, and the light guy is the nightmare of the nightmares. It's just like perfect. <laughs> well, no, that's a rangefinder thing. That's oh, not a like thing. Well, okay. <laughs> Add in the cost. It's like a nightmare of a nightmare of a nightmare. Anyway. Uh. We're trying to help you take it off the, your bucket list, Josh. <laughs> Getting closer. Yeah, there you go. So if I'm walking down the street with a digital camera in one hand and a film camera in the other, and I see something happening in front of me, how do I know like what to shoot with what? Well, this is going to uh, change depending on each person and the type of scene that you feel comfortable uh, that you think you can get right when you're shooting film. But uh, in general, I wouldn't choose to shoot film for anything action-related. Like, if, if I can tell that there's going to be a lot of movement, uh, I will probably choose to shoot digital instead because your shutter speeds are pretty limited, are usually pretty limited when you're shooting, uh, when you're shooting film. Are limited. They are going to be limited by your film stock by your ASA uh, and of course the fastest cameras can rarely go beyond 1,000 one one thousandth of a second oh wow although I guess yeah although I guess the Canon camera bodies they can go they can go faster but yeah basically anything action related I'm going to prefer to shoot digital and I like to shoot film for pictures of people more than anything else I wouldn't choose a choose to shoot film for a landscape unless it was a slide film like you know a really exotic uh really contrasty with a lot of colors uh that i might that i might consider shooting with a slide film but if it's uh, in general i would go with people people pictures uh portraits for example are a great way uh, are a great scene for for shooting film uh, especially if you have a nice telephoto, you can get gorgeous bokeh. That's a that's a great uh, case for shooting film, and uh, and street photography as well. But like I said, it, you just have to be careful to to choose scenes where people are not moving too fast to make sure you get it right. Uh, although you can you can sort of eyeball it uh, once you get the hang of it, and most of the times you get it right. But yeah, it, it's still a little bit more difficult in shooting digital for those cases. And any scene that I believe would work better in black and white, I would definitely shoot in with film because black and white film is so much better than, than digital. Uh, this is actually one of the main reasons to, to shoot film. The, the, the character of black and white film is something that hasn't been matched by a digital technology yet, in my opinion. And uh, it probably will at some point, but we're not quite there yet. And Marius, I, I remember you said you liked how the Acros uh, film simulation by Fuji on the on the recent uh, Expro 2 uh, looked, and, and I agree, it looks gorgeous. And if you like that look, I would definitely... Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Kodak Tri-X before, which is a very popular film, but I don't think... It's not really similar to that Acros film simulation. No, no, it's a very different character. Right. Yeah, I, I recognize that. But one of the one of the films that I was actually going to pick up uh, pick up a role of was uh, was the real Acros film because right. that's one of Fuji's modern films, and so I, I figured that would be a, a very fun way for me to uh, to do a direct comparison because then I could literally shoot the scene with my yeah. X Pro Two and with the Minolta, 
and then take a look at the results and see you know how how close they've come in my estimation. Now that's going to be very difficult for me because of course my my technique as far as film shooting is is crap. So what I think might be the same <laughs> exposure might turn out to be wildly different. But you know, uh, either way, it would be a fun thing to try. Um, but it kind of <laughs> leads me to my to my you know final question for for the episode and for you here. Um, I've kind of lucked out in that I inherited this this excellent camera that I can now start exploring film with. But let's say that you are one of our listeners and you're kind of intrigued now by the idea of trying to shoot film, uh, but you're not really sure where to start because there's like decades worth of camera options out there and there's just a ton of different film stock options. So if you were to recommend to someone like a, a good, obviously affordable um, starter starter kit for for film photography, what would it include? Well, it would depend in, on whether uh, you think they need or you would need autofocus or not. If you can make do with manual focus, I would definitely recommend a Canon A1 program, which is the one I own. That used to be a fantastic camera back in the day. It was a professional camera. And it was so popular that you can find it very easily online today. Uh, by You can buy one for under $100. So it's a fantastic deal. And the, the FD lenses, it, it, this camera uses the old Canon FD mount. They are all manual lenses. They all have dedicated aperture rings. They are great. Uh, they're not the best in terms of build quality, but optically they are fantastic. And there are a lot of them to choose from, and you can find them, again, very easily and very cheaply for for most of them and in, in most cases, so you're not going to have any problems there. Uh, I would definitely recommend you go with that. If you're comfortable with spending a little bit more money and you think you need autofocus, I would recommend you go with one of the Canon film bodies. And I have experience with the EOS, EOS I don't know how you say it, EOS, the Canon EOS 3. Uh, that used to be, it is actually the second best film camera Canon has ever made. Uh, it's second only to the EOS 1. And uh, Arguably, for some people, it's even better. I mean, it's not as great in terms of build quality, but it has these fantastic eye detection technology for selecting your focus point. So once you train the uh, the onboard computer, you can just look at where you want the camera to focus, and it just picks up the nearest focus point to where you're looking at, and it focuses there. It works like magic. It's it's really incredible. Interesting. And uh, and that's a that's a fantastic feature to have. Another camera that also has that feature is one that in the US at least, and probably Canada as well, was uh, was released under the name of Elan 7, 7 or 7E, I remember. I don't, I'm not, I don't remember exactly, but Elan 7, definitely. Right. Uh, it's sort of like a more consumer-grade camera, but it still has most of the features and most of the, the automation and all of that. Uh, but the the EOS three is fantastic. It has a great, really great AF system. The body is basically the same size and the same shape as the current uh, the five D, for example, the current flagship Canon bodies. Right. And it's of course compatible with the full selection of Canon glass, which is fantastic. So if you if you're looking to share lenses, if you already have an existing Canon digital camera and you you want to reuse those same lenses on a film body, you can definitely go with that. And uh, that would be a, a great investment. And you can probably find it for also 
uh, between $100 and $200, the, the camera body, I mean. I, I think my mom and dad have an old EOS camera, film camera. I'm like 99% sure. Yeah, they were really popular. There you go. So now, Oh, boy. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, there you go. My eyes just opened up. Phone call in the making. <laughs> Josh is going to run off and, and grab that camera. From well, so, okay. So that covers cameras. And then in terms of, in terms of what film stocks people should start with, like what's something that's reasonably flexible or, or, you know, is a good starter film for some other reason that you determine? Uh, well, before we get into that, I think I, I should probably say that I would get started with like the, the nifty 50, the 50 millimeter prime for any camera that you get. Oh, that's right. Lenses. Yeah. That's going to be the, That's always going to be the cheapest lens for any camera system you, you choose to go with. So get that first. Uh, it's also easier to, to work with that than with a super wide lens or a super long lens. So get, get start there. And as you, as you get more comfortable, you can get more lenses and, but take it uh, one step at a time and you'll be okay. And as far as films go, uh, well, I would. Uh, I usually shoot uh, a, a pretty small number of films. Really, I have a few favorites, and I don't. I rarely uh, stray from that. So, in terms of black and white film, uh, I like Tri-X, the Kodak Tri-X film. It's a. It's a perhaps the most popular black and white film in the world right now. Uh, but it has a look that I'm not really a fan of. It's also a a. ASA 400 film, which means it's uh, it's fast, but it's going to give you uh, quite a bit of grain. So if you want a cleaner look, that might not be the best choice for you. Again, the, the grain of the Tri-X film is really beautiful, so uh, that's not going to be a problem, probably for you. But if you're concerned about that, it's something you should keep in mind. If you want a faster film, uh, the Ilford's are really great and the Fujis as well. Uh, I have experience with uh, the Ilford Delta, which goes up to 3200. So you have plenty of room there to shoot anything you want, uh, even in super low light. And if you want a faster film, both the Kodak T Max 100 and the Ilford Delta 100 are really good as well. So those would be my, my usual choices for black and white film. Now, for color film, uh, it would depend, once again, if I'm taking primarily pictures of people or of people and something else, more of the environment as well. If if I want the best skin tones possible, I would always go with Kodak Portra in any of its speeds. Like, they, they have the 160, the 400, and the 800. They're all excellent. Perhaps my favorite is the 800 because it's a bit more saturated and the colors are, they have more pop to them. I really like it despite it having a little bit more of grain, but it's a really beautiful grain. I love that film. So I guess that's why it's so so popular as a filter. Yeah, definitely. Because the skin tones of Portra are fantastic. They are really, really beautiful. And then um, if I want more saturated colors for if there's going to be foliage or, you know, uh, greens on uh, on the picture then i usually go with ektar ektar is a very tricky film to expose because it's it tends to give uh, a reddish skin tone if you're not careful with the light so it, it, you 
unfortunately you ha- you just have to play with it and and see i cannot really give you uh the the specifics of where and when is is best to shoot that film but i can just say that if you get it right it's i haven't seen a film that i like better than than ektar it's a it's a 100 speed film so it's super clean i believe it it has it's sold as the film with the world's finest grain and i believe that it it's barely barely noticeable so the images are super sharp and super clean and and i i really like the the colors the contrast it's a, it's a really contrasty film so awesome that's definitely up there and then um uh, uh yeah it's the portras Ektar, the Fuji 400H is also a pretty cool film. If you're going to have lots of natural light, like uh, in the golden hour, that's a very popular film because it gives you a very, very mellow, very, very golden tones that look really nice. It's very popular for wedding photography, for example, or for engagement pictures. Uh, that that look that you often see in, in wedding photographs that is almost like a painting. That's often... Uh, shot with 400h film it's a really really beautiful film and that's about it yeah okay so so basically if if you find yourself the uh one of those canon cameras depending on whether or not you want autofocus then film wise it sounds like you can you really can choose pretty much anything for your starter role depending on on what kind of thing you're after yeah it's super flexible yeah it's super flexible and creativity wise it gives you a lot of options you you're and and you start playing with that too. Like you start looking for situations depending on the role that you have in your camera at that point, and vice versa. You also uh, have to think. Well, I, I want to shoot this. Which film works best, right? So it goes both ways. But it's a really really fun exercise. And uh, I I'd forgot to mention slide film. Uh, and I've only uh, I've only shot uh, Velvia, which is a film from Fuji with a speed of 50 only 50 is super super slow and and is also incredibly clean but is even it's even more contrasty than ektar but it's uh, less forgiving as i said before you have to be careful with when you shoot that film because uh if if there's a lot of contrast in the scene you're gonna you're not gonna be able to to get it right so not a good starter film then right on a cloudy day nothing beats belbia it's it's incredible the colors that that film puts out it's art they are fantastic and provia is kind of similar to velvia but it works better with people so there you go those are my those are my choices well i don't know if you narrowed it down for people there that was a lot of choices (laughs) i was gonna say i was writing them down it's like oh holy crap (laughs) well i think it's about 10 yeah there's 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 a lot of choice in there so basically you can't go wrong try something whatever you've got available and uh report back we are going to do the same i think uh, josh and i are going to go find our respective family heirloom cameras and find whatever film we can we can grab and and yep you know just try it out basically see what uh, what we managed to get out of them and uh, we'll come back to you with uh, with what our first impressions were uh, I mean to be fair I have shot film before back in the like instant camera days um, but I, I guess that doesn't really count um, so this is this is me trying it for real nice um, and yeah, obviously, if you guys have any questions, we would love to hear them because film is something that we're going to circle back to, I'm sure. Um, we, we didn't really talk about medium format or large format. Um, and there's there's a lot of nuances that we 
did get around to, but um, we'd like to tackle at some point. So if uh, if there's something in particular you're curious about or uh, you're an expert on, you know, let us know, um, and we will we will certainly talk about it on the show. Yeah, definitely. <laughs>